Turn with me to Isaiah 25. Isaiah chapter 25. But I'll, um, we're going to pause our study, but right now we're in Isaiah 25. We'll, we'll take a pause in uh, July 11th, I think it is, as we study the book of Titus together. Again, one of three uh, letters or epistles that Paul wrote to pastors called the, past, uh, the, uh, um, the pastoral epistles. He writes it to Titus, who he left in uh, the island of Crete, off of Greece, near, in Greece, um, uh, to establish elders in the church, to set in order the things of the church. And our, our series is actually called The Gospel-Ordered uh, Church. So that'll be a lot of fun, July 11th. Read that book uh, as we get ready to study it as well. But meanwhile, we're in chapter 25. I'm going to read to you the text. We're, not, we're only covering one chapter, 12 verses. Uh, so I'll read it to you first, then we'll look at it uh, together. So turn with me to Isaiah and your app, your Bible, there's Bibles in the back, um, your, your iPad or whatever you have, we're in Isaiah 25, and now I want to read to you from the ESV, the word of the Lord, Isaiah 25, verse 1, O Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure, for you have made a city, a heap, the fortified city, a ruin, the, the foreigner's palace is a city no more, it will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of the cloud, for the song of the ruthless is put down. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of, of aged wine well-refined. And he will swallow up this mountain, the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God, We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Verse 10. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. Moab will be trampled down in his place as straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hands in the midst of it as a swimmer spreads out his hands out to swim. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together in the skill of his hands. Verse 12. And the high fortification of his walls will be brought down, lay low, and cast to the ground, to the dust. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. We are in one of the subsections of the first major section of Isaiah. Isaiah, first major section, chapter 1 through chapter 39. The first subsection we saw was chapter 1 through chapter 12 where Isaiah, the mouthpiece of God, the prophet of God, was speaking mainly to the southern kingdom. Remember, both kingdoms were split by then. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. He was speaking mainly to Judah, the southern kingdom. And he was calling into account God's people for breaking their covenant, their sin of breaking, and the breaking of their covenant. And we've seen over and over again that although God has called his people into account for their sin breaking, there's, there's been over and over this, this wonderful picture and, and, and hope that Isaiah has, has, has said about the king, 
about God the King who's going to come. He's going to, to wash away all the sins of his people. He's going to establish his eternal kingdom. We see in this verse here, chapter 9, verse 6, 7, and behind me, Jesus will come, he'll establish in a kingdom. And we see this hope in the midst of this covenant-breaking sin. That's why we're calling this series the gospel according to Isaiah. There's so much Jesus in this gospel story of Isaiah. In fact, it is the most quoted prophet in all the New Testament. In chapters 13 through 27, which we're in now, another sub, uh, a subsection, God's prophet Isaiah turns the table, as you've seen. He's speaking oracles, judgments, burdens, announcements to other nations. Moab, Babylon, Assyria, Syria. And again, though, we've seen over and over in this subsection, 13 through 20, we're in 25 today, this message of hope, this message of salvation, this message that all peoples of all nations, of all tribes and all tongues will come and worship the Lord for his salvation. We ended last week in chapter 24. The same place the Apostle Paul ended when he, when he spoke in Romans, the first three chapters, showing how every person is a lawbreaker. Every person has broken the covenant. But Every person not only is accountable for their sin, but Paul goes on to write that there's hope. And that's the gospel. And that's what we've seen in Isaiah. We've seen the gospel, this idea that we are sinners who need salvation, that God has provided a way through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as we get to chapter 25, and I mentioned this briefly last week, that there's a contrast we'll see in chapter 25 from chapter 24. The contrast of the city of man and the city of God. The city of man is where man is at the center. And the city of man is what God declares he will cast down. It will be abandoned. It will be destroyed. But in the city of God is a place of security. There's, there's a place of, of abundance. There is life in the city of God. And as we get to chapter 25 this morning, it's on the heels of this announcement of chapter 24. This, 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 this picture that Isaiah paints of the destruction of the city of man, of earth itself will be destroyed. And as God in his grace saves people and, and, and establishes eternal reign and rule in his new kingdom, as we will see in chapter 25. So there's a contrast between chapter 24 and chapter 25. If you look with me in chapter 26, real quickly, in verse 1, in that day this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He, God, sets up salvation as walls and bulwarks. We see this contrast. The city of man, which will be destroyed, and the city of God, which will stand forever. It's not only a contrast of city, we see a contrast of songs as well. The songs that the, the city of man was singing will be silenced, and it will make way for the song that Judah will sing, God's people will sing. It's a beautiful picture. And actually, chapter 25 really is this segue, this open window Chapter 24, the destruction of the earth, all sin will be judged. Chapter 25, we see this open window of God's love, his mercy, his restoration, and his redemption. It's a beautiful picture. So as we get into the text, three things we will see. And remember, this, this, this overriding is idea and what Isaiah is pointing at is not so much the destruction of God's enemies, although that is true, but his provision of God's salvation. We don't, want to, we don't want to miss that. It is the triumph of God, not only over his enemies, as I said last week, but for his people. 
And we see that in chapter 25. So the exaltation of God's name, verses 1 through 5. The enjoyment of God's feast, verses 6 through 8. And then the expression of God's salvation, 9 through 12. So if you're taking notes, there's your outline. So let's look at the first outline here, the first point. The exaltation of God's name. Look what Isaiah does. In the beginning of this um, section, this personal affirmation, that really, he really sets the tone of this whole chapter in, in verse 1. He says, O Lord, you are my God. The singer is saying, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. And what we see here opening up in this chapter is this, this personal relationship with this God who's showing mercy, who is showing kindness and grace on the heels of judgment and wrath in chapter 24. That's what we deserve. And then Isaiah opens up with this singer, this song of praise saying, you are my God. I will exalt you. I, I will praise your name. Claiming that the Lord is my God. A, a statement of, of, of personal, intimate relationship with the Creator. Remember, theology, the study of God says there is a God. Personal relationship says, my God. Do you know God that way this morning? That is your God. Through the work of Jesus Christ. It represents this saving faith. A relationship, trusting that this worship is trusting the Lord. He's, he's worshiping, proclaiming the God of his salvation. He says he wants to exalt his name. To exalt means to, to lift God up high, worthy of esteem and adoration. He, he is this singer's one greatest treasure. The single and most greatest treasure. The highest of all adorations in his life. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Remember, we talked about this floor. When the Bible talks about praising your name, what that means is he's praising the God of that name. He is praising him for his reputation, for his character, for his attributes, for all who God is in his behavior, in his, in his praise, in his actions and deeds. All that God has done. I will exalt you. You are my God. I will praise your name. Now look what he does. He, the, the, the song, this song of praise uh, what he does is he shows four things in which he is praising God for. All right, four things, right? He gives four reasons while this, this, this I want to say psalm, it's almost like a psalm, that Isaiah is saying we should praise God. Look with me with those four things real quickly. Number one, second part of verse 25. Why should I praise your name? For you have done wonderful things. Plans formed of old, faithful and sure. The term, uh, you have done wonderful things, many times in Scripture speaks of his salvation. The deeds and the miraculous acts of God's redemption and his salvation. And the people of God and, and the Judaites who are, who are hearing this from the prophet certainly can look back at the Exodus, right? And see the hand of God with the plagues and, and the Red Sea. And they can look back and see this deliverance from Egypt and remember all that God has done. Or they can look at the immediate context of the deliverance of this worldwide judgment in chapter 24 that we looked at last week. And worship and praise and exalt God for their salvation from the worldwide judgment that will come. How much more for us this morning who know and look to the wonderful work of Christ. 
The Apostle Paul himself speaks of salvation in Ephesians chapter 1. He speaks of us being chosen before the foundations of the world. That in love he predestined, that was God, to adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. And he goes on to say, according to the purposes of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved. This idea of worship, Paul says, goes back Plans of old. Uh, Isaiah says, plans of old. Uh, Paul talks about before the foundations of the world. Isn't that the gospel? That what is faithful and sure? Doesn't the gospel then stir our hearts, bring us to a place of, of adoration and thanksgiving? How much more for us who know the cross? Motier, in the commentary, Motier, he says, the, uh, the idiom of the two nouns, faithful and sure, together means every imaginable faithfulness, perfect, quintessential faithfulness, pure faithfulness, end quote. God's faithfulness, God's certainty of his salvation as provided for us reveals his sovereign plans and God's commitment to do what God says he was going to do. These plans are eternal. These plans are set. There is nothing, nothing in all creation. No human power can change or alter that. And no human power can accomplish that in which God says he will do. That's what he's praising God for that. Reason number two, right? Verse one, you've done wonderful things, planned from old, faithful and true. Look at number two. You have made the city a heap. The fortified city a ruin. The foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. See what the worshiper is doing? The worshiper is singing this song knowing and praising God as he humbles all the works of human pride. As, as God destroys the human pride and oppression in the city of man. In the city of, of, of arrogance and, and hungry power, you know, power hunger people being crushed throughout the ages. Become a heap. The, the prophet saying, we see the power of God. We see what God's going to do and triumph over all things, what he has planned to do. And that just, we, we rejoice over what God is going to destroy. The pride, the oppression, those who raise up against him, number two. And look what the consequences, uh, or the reason, uh, or the result, I should say, of that. So you've done wonderful things, reason number one. You've made the city a heap. You're going to destroy the, 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 those who oppose you. Verse 3, therefore, see that? Because of those two things, therefore, there's a result. Strong peoples will glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. I love this quote by Oswald. This is so true. Listen to this quote. Until all is lost, we tend not to focus upon anything but ourselves. Myself. When the situation is hopeless then we are likely to look to God and recognize him as the only remaining help, end quote. And everyone said, amen. <laughs> you see what Isaiah is saying? God can and God will deeply transform the previous city, the ungodly, the oppressive, the proud people, the world, he will transform them by the power of the gospel. It will go on display. For now these strong people will glorify you. He used the word strong as saying the proud. Things will change. Transformation will happen. 
He's talking about you. He's talking about me. Although I don't use the word proud, I may use the word hard-headed. One of the ways that I have been, as I've been studying Isaiah, and we've been studying together, one of the ways that keeps me humble as we see this destruction of evil in the world and not get caught up with everything that's going on today is to remember that the sinful city that will be in ruins, that sinful city that will be destroyed and never be rebuilt again includes my sin. My participation in this world, in this jacked up world. Yeah, it's true that as followers of Christ, we know the gospel. And we have the, the, the commission and the mission to preach the gospel, to, to see the power of Christ, to see brokenness around us healed, see wholeness. But it's also helpful, I think, for me to remember the reality of the brokenness and sin in which I battle. Ever since Genesis 3, we enter into this world as sinful, broken people. We are broken people living in a world that is broken and is, it is part of who we are until we are with Jesus, fully glorified. For alive, we battle with sin. That's the bad news. But the good news is, it, it, it is when we accept how dead we are in sin, how broken we are in sin, how, fallen we sh- how, how, how short we've fallen from the glory of God, that we begin to embrace the gospel to celebrate the grace of God, the necessity of his mercy. And then we are overwhelmed by the grace and love of Christ and we want to share with other people. To acknowledge our sin and brokenness, to see the need for forgiveness. That's where it begins. So yeah, we grieve. We see sin and brokenness all around us. We even may get righteously angry toward the sin around us and rejoice that God will destroy sin and destroy those who... Uh, oppose him and judge but also we must remember to rejoice in the victory that Christ has in my life in the day in which my sin will be eradicated in the day in which I will have a glorified body in the day in which God will remove from me the brokenness that I walk with each and every day that is something I have to always remember I was reminded this week of that passage in Luke you know it Pharisee, a religious leader, a Bible thumper. (laughs) Someone who knows his Bible inside out and follows the law impeccably is praying. And Jesus hears him pray and he says, Lord, I, I thank you. I'm not like those guys. Adulterers, extortioners, you know, the tax collector over there. I fast twice a week. I, I give tithes, everything that I have. But the tax collector just pounds his chest and cries out, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Remember what Jesus said, who will go away justified? The Pharisee who ties and gives? No, it'll be the tax collector who's broken. And then Jesus says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So whether it's Babylon, whether it's Assyria, whether it's Moab, whatever, whatever it is, even me, There's a part of me that needs to die, that needs to be destroyed, that needs to recognize his brokenness so we can learn to lean into the Lord, to press into his grace, into his mercy, to receive forgiveness as only he can give, restoration as only he can do, and with that, there is praise. That's what what Isaiah is saying. Done wonderful things, made the city a heap, therefore strong peoples will glorify you. Look at the fourth reason to worship and praise, verse 4. For you have been a stronghold to the poor, 
a stronghold to the needy in distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against the wall, like heat in a dry place. God is honored not just because he destroys the cities of the proud, but also he does it for the sake of the broken, for the oppressed, the poor, the needy in distress. Protection, God says, for those who cannot protect themselves. Isaiah has been, as we have seen over the past 24 chapters, a lot to say about the needy, a lot to say about the poor, and how the leaders, if you remember, in Judah were not caring for the poor and the needy, they're only caring for themselves. And God's saying he's a stronghold. And look how, what, what a beautiful, colorful writer Isaiah is. I know he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Isaiah uses these, these two extreme weathers uh, that, that's typical in the East, in the Near East, a symbol to show that how God is the refuge, God is the protector, right? He uses thunderstorms and unrelenting heat. Both happen where storms, unexpected rainstorms come in. And, and it's exhaustive heat that threatens life in the Near East. And he says, unless one has a stronghold against the flood, a shade from the heat, there is no hope. And the, God is that source, though, he says, of strength. For those who place their faith in him and trust in him, in the sovereign God who cares for them. For you have been a stronghold, a shelter from the storm, a shade from the heat. I will praise you. Number four. The last reason, look at 5b. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of a cloud so the song of the ruthless is put down. Now let me explain that. So what Isaiah is doing, he's using this metaphor of weather to show he's a refuge and, and a shelter in the time of this, this extreme weather. And now he's using that kind of the same, but he's turning it around. He's saying, just as God was a protector for the poor and the needy, the Lord now gives his people relief by humbling the, the song of the ruthless foreigner enemies. In other words, you see the contrast here. God is able to subdue the noise of foreigners, to mute the, the demands of the foreigners just as easy as a cloud covering, and to care for the poor and the needy. And that will end their songs, but will bring a song into the voice and the words of God's people. And if you know God, if you know God and you have a personal relationship through the Lord Jesus Christ, then you could praise him for who he is, how he protects his people, how he subdues and quiets the enemies. You could praise him for who he is, for the promises that he has made and, and his holiness and his justice and his grace and his mercy. And you could give thanks to him for your salvation. So there's this sense of, of praising God for who he is his character, his attributes, his beauty and his glory. And then there's this thanksgiving that is being offered to him for all that he has done. And we need both of that family. We need to praise him for who he is. We need to give him thanks for all that he has done. That's what the Isaiah is saying. Number two, the enjoyment of God's feast. This is beautiful. Verse six. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast Rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Isaiah says, God's people are going to praise and worship him. And now he turns the table and said, but God is going to prepare a 
feast for his people. Notice what it says, all peoples, every ethnic group, every tongue, every tribe. The banquet is a joyous celebration as God reigns and rules over the world. And this mountain is the mountain of Zion. We saw that in chapter 24, verse 23. And this beautiful picture that Isaiah is portraying to us and showing us uh, is reminiscent of kings in that day who would, who would be um, coronated or crowned. There would be sacrifice. There would be celebratory meals. So also as the Lord takes and reigns in Jerusalem, in Zion, which is Jerusalem, there would be a festival meal. If you remember in the Old Testament, when God establishes covenant with his people in Sinai, he grabs Moses and Aaron, the 70 elders as representative of Israel, they went up to behold God, and what did they do? They ate and drank. Only here it's the Lord. The Lord is providing the banquet. All of his grace. It's not going Dutch. You bring yours, I bring mine. The invited guests do nothing. Their host, the Lord himself, will provide everything. All that is necessary. Nothing but the best will do. All this feasting and celebrating signifying the blessing that God brings to mankind through his kingdom, through his salvation. The choicest of foods, the best and most, the best you can eat and drink, he offers. Rich foods. Actually, the word food is, is in the plural. Interesting. The fullness of foods, he says. When God establishes kingdom. And he reigns in Zion. All the world will be blessed. And what will flow from God from Zion cannot be received from this world. You will not get this satisfaction from this world. It is not the worthless, insufficient, unsatisfying things that we are chasing after in this world. It will not do. All the philosophies, all the ideas, ideologies will never satisfy like this. It is the precious truth of the gospel, the all-satisfying, everlasting gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what God offers. King Jesus, reigning and ruling, truly satisfying, blessing mankind like nothing this world can offer. Great food, great wine, the banquet of salvation. Now, I believe it's a foretaste of this banquet here and now, but as you all know, I've said this before, the millennial kingdom comes in. The beginning of the kingdom, the marriage feast of the land and his bride takes place. The idea of this messianic banquet is all over scripture in Luke and Matthew and even in Revelation 19. In fact, Jesus is looking forward for this banquet to take place. He said on the night that he instituted the Lord's Supper, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine. You know this. You know this. I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in my father's kingdom. Matthew 26. Destruction of sin forever. The misery that dominates all of mankind, all that we experience will be over. And as if the banquet, this communion, this feast with God isn't enough, he does four more things. Look at verse 7. He will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples. He, he, will, he will swallow up on the mountain the covering that casts over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He's going to do away with this veil. Some people think this veil has to do with suffering and the misery. Um, some people have to think that it has to do with the covering of, of hardness of hearts, that God's going to remove this veil from the heart so they can see the beauty of glory of Christ. I think it's the first one. I think it has to do with suffering, uh, that God will remove this, this veil, this suffering that has 
uh, plagued each and every one of us. Only God can remove sorrow. And as he does, look at the second thing God will do. He will not only remove this veil, he will swallow up death forever. The Lord of hosts will prepare a meal and then swallow up death forever. Think about this. One cannot experience the joy of salvation of an eternal kingdom unless the universal curse of death is gone. I say this at every funeral I've ever done. Death is not part of life. No matter what Forrest Gump's mother told him on her deathbed. It's part of the curse. Death is part of the curse. God told Adam in Genesis 2, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Don't disobey me. Trust me. Rest in me. Rely upon what I've given you. But if you do, in that day you will what? Surely die. We know the story. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, for the wages of sin, at the end of the day, the wages of sin is death. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable puts on the imperishable, the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death awaits all of us. And the followers of Christ, we know that's what Jesus came to do. We know exactly what he accomplished in his death and resurrection from the grave. For the wage of sin is death, but, you know the verse, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. 1 Corinthians 15, the sting of death is sin, the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through Jesus Christ our Lord, right? In him, in Christ, death has been defeated once and for all. And for those who place their faith in Christ, it has for us the ultimate deliverance. He is the ultimate deliverance of death. We may be delivered from addictions, from wants, from oppression, but until we are delivered from death and the sin which issues it, all other deliverances really are just temporary. Until we're delivered from that, because the Bible says that the last enemy is to be destroyed is death. Jesus Christ conquered the grave. The complete removal of death forever has been done away with through the atoning work of Jesus. And until we, uh, uh, and, and because of that, the central foundational understanding of the kingdom is eternal life with him, being with Christ. Look at the third thing he does. (laughs) I love it. And the Lord will wipe away tears from whose faces? All. All God's children. In that day, God will wipe away tears, not only because of death. I don't think it's only because of death. What you see here is this beautiful picture. And look at it. The Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. There's this picture of this this parent. Many of you have children. And you know when your child hurts themselves and, you, and you, it's, this, it's this wiping away, this care, this compassion and love that you have for your child as you wipe away the hurting tears. Tears of oppression, of sickness, of pain, of loneliness, of rejection, or anything else. All other kinds of loss, God gently and fatherly, motherly, I'll say, wipes away all your tears. There's no need for them anymore in the kingdom. 
The gospel makes it clear that it, it, it's done away with in the person and the work of Christ, who suffered in our place, who died in our place, himself the sacrifice for our sin. Behind the beauty and glory of this blessing is the cross. And finally, look what else he does. As if the banquet isn't enough, and the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. You know what that means? That means all our sin, their sin, their disobedience, our disobedience, against the God of covenant, the covenant uh, of God. All the shame, all the brokenness, everything that we have been and have done is gone. Washed away by his salvation. And Isaiah says, listen, people, God loves you. God cares for you. God will wipe away your tears. God will do, remove your disgrace. We know the shame and disgrace, tears. We know all that because we know the cross. We know the gospel. And we know that the blessings flow from the cross now and in eternity. Ed Young writes, only the revealed religion of the Bible can give true comfort to man and can evoke from him tears of loving joy and gratitude. For only the revealed religion of the Bible, Christianity, presents of God of true love, true compassion, who paid the price necessary to swallow up death and to wipe away all tears. The enjoyment of God's feast. He will have a feast. He will swallow up suffering. He will remove the veil. He'll swallow up death. He'll remove the tears. He'll remove the reproach of God's people. And then finally, look, the expression. This is beautiful. This is beautiful. It will be said on that day, verse 9, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You'll see verse 9, this testimony of rejoicing. This rejoicing testimony, verse 9, is in contrast to verse 10, and we'll get to that. But again, Isaiah starts out with this personal element. Behold, this is our God. Now, he starts out in verse 1. He said, this is my God. Now he's talking about not just personal commitment and relationship with Creator. Now he's talking about congregation. As we sing together, this is our God. God shows him faithful not just to you personally, but faithful to his people. And their response together in a community is seen in a deep sense of affection and love and closeness and worship. As God rescues them, and rescues us and brings us into this relationship with him, there is praise and worship. Now, in Exodus chapter 6, when, right before God brings them out of Egypt, this is what he says. He says to Moses, go tell the people, I'm the Lord. I'll, I'll bring you out of bondage. I'll bring you from under the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you from slavery. I'll redeem you by my outstretched arm of great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people that I will be your God. See that? And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptian. In other words, you have saved me. We couldn't do it ourselves. Only you. And therefore, I will praise you. And for the salvation, I will trust you for the salvation that you have provided. Now, let me ask you this question. If this is true, and it is, is there ever a time, is there ever a time when we should stop praising God for our salvation? 
Is there ever a time when our salvation is not praiseworthy? The answer is no. Even in the roughest, most difficult hardship trial we're going through, not that, not that we excuse the pain or try to push it away, there is always a sense in believers who have trusted in Christ that our sins have been forgiven. And the greatest defeat, the, the greatest thing that we need to be crushed and overcome is death, sin, and destruction in Christ alone. No matter what we're going through. They've waited and they've trusted. Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. The work is the work of God. Now look, look. we'll end in this in the contrast, then we'll go to communion. Look at the contrast. So that's verse 9, right? We waited, the word waited has to do with trust. We've waited, we trusted, we see now your salvation. Everything we waited on, everything we trusted in has come true. You, you did what you said you're going to do and you're going to save us. And then in verse 10 is the contrast. For the hand of the Lord will rest on this mountain. That is the mountain Moab. And Moab shall be trampled down in his place. As straw is trampled down in a dunghill. And he will spread out his hand in the midst of it. As a swimmer spreads his hands out to swim. That's, that's all Moab. But the Lord will lay low his pompous pride together. With the skill of his hands and the height. Fortifications of his walls will be bring down low, will be will bring down low, will bring down, lay low, and cast to the ground and to the dust. You see see what's happening here. Moab is a picture of pride. We saw that in chapter 16. So their disgrace and their destruction of Moab demonstrates to the world, to us even today, that those who don't trust God, those who are not resting in God, those who are seeking their own salvation, will be brought down. Trampled underfoot in, in a dunghill. That's a manure pile, just in case you're wondering. And this beautiful illustration of Moab trying to swim their way out of uh, destruction. It's not going to work. The do-it-yourself, swimming away, trying to, trying to reach the end by yourself. It'll be brought down. None of their defenses will stand against the judgment of God. The Lord, the Lord will bring down uh, Moab. You got the hill, the mountain of Zion, where God reigns with mercy and grace. You got the mountain of Moab, and God's hand is upon that. You see that? So we, as we pray, as the Lord Jesus told us, you know, thy kingdom come. We have to recognize when the kingdom comes, there'll be those who will be ushered into the kingdom. The fullness of joy and the presence of God, Psalm 16. But there'll be those who will be tossed out because of pride, self exaltation, trying to save themselves. So let me ask you this. Are you trusting in God today? Are you trusting God? Are you praising his name for all that he has done and all that he is? Does your heart fill with joy knowing of the feast that awaits you? Are you treasuring Christ, his victory over sin, the grave, as our substitute who died in our place, bearing the penalty we deserve, rising from the dead, offering salvation? To those who call upon him. Jesus said I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me though he die yet he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Paul told Timothy that Christ has abolished death. Revelation we see in chapter 7. These, these men that come out of the great tribulation. Having washed their robes with, and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Experienced this fullness of resurrection and, 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 and the Bible says God will wipe away every tear 
every tear from their face. And of course, you know the end of the Bible, the very last chapter in Revelation 21. The city of God comes down. The new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, out of heaven, the Bible says, prepared as a bride, adorned for a husband, and the dwelling place of God is with man. There's that intimacy. He, God, will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And then John writes, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Family, that's the God we worship. Because of all, because of who he is, we exalt his name because all that he's done. Destroying death, destroying his enemy, providing a feast for his people. Death, the last enemy, has been conquered in Christ. But let me say this very carefully, but lovingly. If you and I insist that we don't need redemption, if you and I insist, like Moab, we think we could do this on our own, that we can take care of ourselves, we too will be laid low, brought down, cast out of the presence of God forever. Death will be conquered. Death will be destroyed. But those who refuse the offer of the Lamb to come await the second death. We don't want that for anyone. God offers deliverance and salvation through His Son. Don't turn. Don't turn from Him. Trust Him. That's what this communion is all about. As the band comes up, take out your communion cup. The communion represents the work of salvation. All that Christ has done. The bread represents his body that was broken, nailed to a cross on the hill called Golgotha. The blood represents the blood that was shed. Trust him this morning. Acknowledge your sin. Maybe maybe this morning is the first day, the first day that you say, you know what? The Lord is showing me I need a savior. I need a savior. I need redemption. I need salvation. I am a sinner. I have broken and violated God's laws. I'm not perfect. I'm going to stand one day in judgment and, and give account for my sin. But Jesus Christ went to the cross. He died a death in my place. He took my place. He bore my sin. He took the wrath I deserve. And I'm going to trust him today. And as I take this communion for the first day, I'm going to drink, eat of the, of the bread, recognize his broken body. I'm going to drink of the cup, remembering his blood that was shed for me. Today's the day of your salvation. Maybe some of you here are there this morning. We welcome you to the table. We welcome you to take communion. But others of you, maybe, maybe you've known Christ for a while. Maybe you had a relationship with him. But today's a day that you will strengthen your faith. That this communion together will ignite your heart to the praise and the worship of his salvation. That you remember and continue to reflect on the work of Christ and all that he did to rescue you and I from sin and death. Listen, we were not created for death. We were created for life. Death has lost its thing. The grave has been robbed of its victory. God the Father defeated sin through the death and burial resurrection of Jesus Christ. And therefore, God's people will what? Be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Are you there with me this morning? Can we partake of communion together, remembering that on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread? 
He gave thanks. This is my body. Whoop, this is my body. It's been broken for you. Take and eat. Let us take and eat. And in the same way, he took the cup. This is the cup of the new covenant. In my blood for the forgiveness of sins. Let's remember the Lord. Father, we need you and we thank you. Father, we thank you for all that you have done in our salvation. And we want to respond now in faith. Growing in our trust in you, growing in understanding of the salvation you have provided for us in Christ. We deserve nothing. You've given us everything. Providing a banquet, swallowing up death, removing sorrow, wiping away our tears. All because of the salvation that you have provided in Christ alone. It's a gift. We accept it. We receive it. And we praise and worship you for it. In Jesus' good name. Amen.